0: Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, what we'd like to do is turn to Revelation 21, continuing our series through the book of Revelation. And this is the creme de la creme, if you want to say of the book of Revelation, because the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, are the only chapters in the Bible that deal with the eternal state. Every other passage in the Old Testament and even parts of the New Testament only deal with the messianic age, the thousand-year reign of Christ on planet Earth. And we dealt with that a little bit when we, we dealt with Revelation 20. But when you get into Revelation 21 and 22, believe it or not, it is the only picture of eternity in the Bible. The Jews in the Old Testament didn't understand anything past the Messianic period. And it is only until John reveals this in 95 AD, when Jesus gives him the revelation, that he reveals what eternity looks like, and he specifies what this city that the patriarchs looked for, called the New Jerusalem, looks like and what it's like in that eternal state. Now, here's the good news. The good news is this eternal state has been prepared by Messiah. And you might know the passage very well in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come for you. That where I am, you shall be. The idea was when he went back in the ascension, back into heaven, he started preparing the new Jerusalem. Now it's prepared. So anyone that dies today as a believer goes to be with the Lord in the new Jerusalem, in heaven. It did not exist prior to the cross because everyone went to paradise or Abraham's bosom in Sheol prior to the cross. But once the cross happened, He took all the inhabitants out of Abraham's bosom and took them up to the new Jerusalem that he had created. And it is a real place. It is multidimensional. It's real. It's not floating on a cloud, strumming a harp like you see in these these cartoons of people in heaven. It it is a real place. And so therefore, I'm going to take my time going through this because I don't hear a lot of people going very deep with heaven. They give it a cursory teaching, and they say, well, that's the great by and by, and there it is. It's heaven. But they don't get into the depth of it, and they don't get into the Jewishness of it, because you have to understand at that level, which will bring out more for you about this eternal abode that we will all go to. The application that we're going to get from this is, and it's the title of the message, is Hope from a Good God. This is the place that God has created for us. This is where we go. This is our eternal home. And because it's our eternal home, it's one of our greatest motivators in our lives. Is that life is not always going to be like this for us. In this world, Jesus said you will have trials and tribulations. You'll have tough times. And many of you are going through tough times. But it's not always going to be like this. And so it creates the proper hope we're supposed to have. Now, here's what happens to a lot of believers and a lot of Christians. They put their hope in the wrong things. They hope in people. They hope in materialism, money, their retirement, all that stuff. And then what happens is is they learn that they get burned by that, that people burn them. The most common thing I hear is that someone has a great uncle or a, 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 a rich uncle or a rich aunt or something, and they're going to leave them a fortune when they die. And you know what ends up happening many times, nine times out of ten? That rich uncle, that rich aunt, who promised that, hey, I'm going to leave you all this money, ends up getting married to somebody, and that person, they die, and then all their money goes to that person, and everyone's disinherited Nine times out of ten. So all these family members who are hoping you know, that Aunt Bertha, who's going to give them a million dollars, is going to make them rich, they end up with nothing. And then they get burned by it. And once you get burned a couple times of putting your faith in the wrong things, like a 401K or a retirement plan or whatever, and those are all good things to do, but if you put your faith in it, you can learn quickly it won't be there. And people will disappoint you. And the what can happen is, if you put that faith in the wrong thing, you will lose hope. A lot of believers are hopeless. And what do you mean? Well, because they have hoped in the wrong things and the wrong people, and they've got burned so many times, they say, you know what? I'm not hoping in anything. And they paint the world all bad, and believe it or not, they make it cross into their Christianity and it doesn't matter what passage they read about you know, the future, and the resurrection, the new body they get, or, or heaven. Because they've been burned so bad, they blanket all hope and say, I'm not trusting in anything. I've been burned too many times. And they live what we call a hopeless life. And I don't know if you've ever ran into a believer like that that has no hope, but they're very depressed. They give up. They don't fight for anything. They have a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress in their life, and they pretty much kill themselves. What do you mean? Because they let themselves go. I'm not saying they commit suicide, which some do actually, but some people just say, what's the point? And they start giving up on life, and they become very bitter, very cynical, very critical. I don't know if you've ever been around someone like that, but you're looking at people who have been burned by putting themselves In a wrong position of hope and getting burned by it. But here's the takeaway from what you're gonna see God is saying, This place is created for you. I'm guaranteeing it for you. And if I guarantee it, it's gonna happen. It is a reality. And that is something you can put your hope into. And we'll talk about the motivation when you put yourself in a position of hoping in the right thing, what it actually does for you. I'll give you an example. They've done experiments on rats. This is the weirdest experiment I've ever heard. This is weird. They had two water tanks, scientists had, and they would put rats in these two tanks. In one tank, they would put rats in it, and it was full of water, and they wanted to see how long they would last swimming in a tank. Well, most of the rats lasted about an hour, and then they drowned in the tank. And then they had tank number two on this side, and they put rats in there and let them swim. But periodically, the researchers would come in there and pick them up out of the water. And then they would actually put them back down in there. And what they found by putting their hand in the water and picking the rats up is the rats would continue to swim. And wouldn't give up. In fact, most of the rats lasted 24 hours as long as they knew someone would try to pick them up. So basically in a rat's brain, they kept thinking, well, if I keep struggling and keep floating, eventually that hand or whatever will come and pick me up. And actually gave, they thought, theoretically, the rats hope for a rat. That they would be rescued out of the water versus the rats who were virtually untouched and unhelped they died within an hour you go from an hour to 24 hours and it, they so you know they write a, they wrote a, a lot of research papers on that just saying this this is what hope does even in animals how much more does hope do for a human we'll talk more about that but that's what this place is doing for us is giving that Hope, And this is not some way of trying to escape reality. It's not some defense against reality or how we tolerate reality. It is our future reality. And so let's plunge into this and we'll take our time going through this because I want to pick out all the nuggets out of this because it's really deep with a lot of theology in it. Let's go into what John says about what heaven looks like and what the eternal abode will be for us. In verse 1, it says this Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Let me unpack that and parse that out before we move on. What we have going on here in the Greek is there's no preposition before new heaven, it just says, I saw new heaven, new earth. And if you attach that with the idea of new, which is kanos in Greek, k A I N O S, kainos, when you combine not having a preposition with that word, what it says is it defines the quality of this environment. That it's a new kind of environment, it's a new in quality, it's brand new, it's fresh. It's the idea that this has never been seen before in all of creation. So it's qualitatively different. This is how we know when John uses these Greek words, how this is different than the messianic age. The messianic age is our world and our universe with the curse reversed. This place has no curse. There's no sin. There's no pollution as far as sin is concerned. There's no scarring as far as the earth and what's happened to earth throughout the judgments of God. It's not polluted by evil. So that's why John uses it's new in kind. It's new in quality. And it's not just the earth. It's the new heaven, which means the galaxy. There's three heavens. There's the atmosphere, space, and then heaven, the third abode, where God resides. Everything is new. So the current state that we're in will be done away with, and then we'll have a new situation. And so therefore, this current earth that we're on, this current universe that we're in, will be replaced. It will not be renovated. It will be a new created order. Now, how is this done? This dissolving of this universe, and this is after the millennial reign. This is after the great white throne judgment. Well, Peter gives us a clue. He was given insight by the Holy Spirit about how this goes about. And we can read this in 2 Peter chapter 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, I'll explain that in just a bit. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Let's just keep that up there. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, you've seen that terminology before. It it refers not only to the rapture. When you see the context, Peter includes the context of the new heaven and the new earth. Therefore, what theologians start understanding is the day of the Lord is not just referring to the rapture and the tribulation. It refers to the work of God in the future that starts with the rapture. And ends with the new created order. So it's a big, giant space of a period of time, which includes the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, the millennial reign, and then this new created order. So it's a big period of time. And so what Peter then says is that during this period of time, God is basically going to melt this current universe and dissolve it with heat. And both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So the idea here is this. Everything will be vaporized. Everything. Everything that you see right now will be vaporized by God himself during this time. Now, the idea is, and then on a scientific level, is it's the principle of mass energy conservation. God is going to then take the energy, because energy never really goes away... He dissolves everything and then recreates new out of that energy, if that makes sense. And so we get a clue in how he goes about doing this from Peter. He first dissolves it and then recreates. By the way, this is what has led other theologians to theorize that's what we have in Genesis 1. We have a recreation. If you read Genesis 1, the original Hebrew is saying he's already taking something that exists And remaking it into something new. And you can see this in the original Hebrew. So something was there before. And I I don't have time to go into it, but just a a little hint when we do study Genesis. The original earth was a gem-like earth. And then Satan rebelled and it caused God to curse that gem-like earth and then him recreate it for man. We'll explain that a little bit more when we study Genesis. But that's why the Hebrew is saying it's a recreation of something that already exists. And so we have that now, Peter talking about that for the future. Well, did the patriarchs know about this? Yes, we didn't have any scripture in the Old Testament that would explain this. But the patriarchs somehow knew about this place. Which is interesting because... This might have been because of direct communication that the patriarchs had with Yahweh, that he told them things, but they, they didn't write it down. What we start to understand a lot of times from the patriarchs is they knew a lot more than what we assume they knew. It's proper to understand your progressive revelation in Scripture, and you go by what's being revealed, but it does indicate that the patriarchs, like particularly Abraham, knew more than what we think. So, for instance, you'll have this passage in Hebrews. This is a Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, talking about the patriarchs, not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Okay? For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, not one on the earth, but a different type of homeland, And he goes, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they came out, they would have an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the writer of Hebrews gives an indication that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Job probably, and, and many of the other patriarchs, foresaw this heavenly city that you're studying. It wasn't written down, but they knew about it. Now, what did it do to them to change their lives? The writer of Hebrews makes a note about this. Listen to this very carefully. The writer of Hebrews says, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have an opportunity to return. He says, the patriarchs, from where they came from, were prevented from going back to their original countries from which they were called because of this place that they had in their head. Did you catch that? Where did Abraham come from? Ur of the Chaldees, did he not? He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees in the Babylonian Shinar area, go up the Fertile Crescent, and I'm going to give you the promised land, right? But what Hebrews is saying is he was looking more from just the promised land, the Haaretz, he was looking for a heavenly city that he was wanting to be a part of, and that looking for the heavenly city prevented him from going back to Ur of the Chaldees. Really? How so? This is very interesting, because this theme will keep replaying in the Bible. When you understand our eternal place that God has for us, and you keep your focus in on where he's at, where Jesus is at, where our heavenly abode is at, where where we are seated in the heavenlies, it actually prevents you from becoming worldly. Okay, so connect some dots for me. Well, the idea of going back to his homeland is the idea that at any point in time, if Abraham didn't like what he was getting from God, he could have bailed. And said, you know what? This is too tough. I don't want to live in this place. I, I just, I'm just i going to go home. And the writer of Hebrews says he had that as an opportunity. He could have went back. And most believers, that's, remember, this is not a call to salvation. It's a call to the land from the Ur of the Chaldees. So he could have said, I don't want it. Give it to someone else. Uh, we had other patriarchs do that. Remember, they sold their birthright for soup. They didn't want it. Remember? They had an option to opt out of this. So we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about being used of God, being blessed of God, having rewards of God. Okay, so follow me on this. This is a major point in the writer of Hebrews about heaven. Because Abraham sought heaven and he wanted to be with God in the eternal abode, in that city that was supposed to be created, Abraham will decide in his personal life to live in a tent for the rest of his life. Have you you ever noticed that? He will not put permanent foundations down and live in a regular home, unlike his nephew, Lot. I was in the area by the Dead Sea where they think Sodom and Gomorrah was. It's on the south side of the Dead Sea. And you can go there, and there's little pellets of brimstone that you can actually light up, and it lights up. And uh, the brimstone's there, and it it rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did Lot choose those areas? It was the well-watered plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. There were five cities in that area. And in those five cities, Lot became a city official eventually. He sunk his roots down into the world system. So much so, his wife pined so much once they left Sodom and Gomorrah, she pined for this world so much, she turned back and was... Turned into a pillar of salt. Remember that? So much so that his girls had incestuous sex with their own father because so much of Sodom was in them rather than the fear of God. They, they left Sodom, but they took Sodom's mentality with them is the idea. They were worldly. And yet we know Lot is a saved man. Peter calls him righteous. Righteous Lot. So we know Lot was saved. But Lot is a picture of a worldly believer who decides to live in cities and put down his roots into this world, and we would call him, from a biblical standpoint, a worldly man, versus Abraham, who lives in a tent, saying, I'm not going to sink my roots down here because I'm looking forward to heaven. Hence, Abraham prevented himself from becoming worldly. Ah, so we're on to something here. You're saying... That the study of heaven and this expectation of this hope that we have prevents us from getting worldly? Yes, it certainly does. Well, what do you mean? Well, look at how other believers act in this world. They love this world immensely because this world gives them worldly advantages, whether it's money or whether it's pleasure, hedonism, whether it's the kind of lifestyle they want to live. And so in order to have that lifestyle, the world says, you can have this, but you've got to compromise your Christianity and you can't be this this kind of tent-living Christian. You can't let go of the world. You have to embrace the world and accept it. If you want its riches and you want its worldly advantages. And a lot of Christians are selling out for it. Hence, a lot of Christians are not living in tents anymore. They're living in the city. They have sunk roots down in this world, and they love it. And they, oh, yeah, you talk about Jesus coming back, and they say, yeah, that's fine and Danny, but just don't come right now, because I'm having too good of a time. So Jesus, just wait up, you know, just wait on for that, because I I got too much to do in my life. It's like, are you crazy? That's the first thing I would want. I want to get out of here. I don't want to be here. Do you? This is crazy. I would want to be raptured right now and be with Jesus, because I want to be in the eternal abode. But it's a sign that the churches in America are failing to teach what this doctrine of heaven does to a believer. It makes you put the proper hope in the next life, not in this one. There is no hope. We're trying to get out of here. And we're trying to help people get on the rescue boat because the Titanic has been hit by an iceberg. It's going down. We're not going to make paradise on earth. So we need to get as many people on the rescue boat and ourselves on the rescue boat because we have the next life to look forward to. And again, don't don't get me wrong. This is not about putting wood in your teeth and gritting down and burying it and just saying, "Eh, this this life is horrible, it's no good, and I'm just going to grin and bear it until I get to the next life. That's not what heaven is doing. It actually creates in you a desire to fulfill your mission in life. That you need to be here, not just to grit your teeth, but you need to fulfill what God has put you on this planet for. Not just to exist, but to fill your mission. That's That's what Abraham was doing. That's what heaven did for him. And by the way, he could have turned back at any point in time. And he didn't. He says, these patriarchs kept going forward. And that's what it does to us. Now, let me go a little bit further. Hang with me. When a believer becomes worldly... And they don't look for heaven. They like heaven. So they're trying to make heaven here, so to speak. What happens to them is they become indifferent to the things of God. You talk about deep things, spiritual things. We would call, the scriptures call it meat of the word of God, right? The meat of the word of God. Dude, they cannot digest that because they're on milk. That's all they can take. So when you give them a heavy dose of meat... It throws them off. They repel against that. Just as if you stuck a steak in a baby's mouth, what would the baby do? He couldn't chew it. He couldn't do anything with it, right? Hence, when you have churches catering to the worldly mindset and all they give out is milk and they never go deep with them, they can't digest real food. Hence, they can't grow. And if you can't grow, you become Laodicea, And if you've ever read about Laodicea, we studied it a while back in the early churches. What was the problem with Laodicea? He says to them, I wish you were neither cold nor hot, but because you are lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. And the idea of cold and hot doesn't have to do with believing and unbelieving. It has to do with being useful. Cold water is useful to drink. Hot water is therapeutic. But lukewarm water with a high mineral content can't do anything but make you vomit. The water is useless. Ah, so connect the dots. Not looking for heaven because I'm worldly, leads me to shallowness, and that shallowness leads me to being useless for the king. Bingo. And let's go one step further. And because I'm useless as a believer, God can't use me, I cannot be rewarded. Oh, I'll get there, but I will not enjoy heavenly rewards of being in the eternal abode. I will be stripped of them. Because I was useless. And Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 3 that some believers will get there basically and the smell of smoke will be on them. They will have nothing to be rewarded for. They got there because salvation's free, but they have nothing to, nothing to be rewarded for because they loved this world too much. That's what heaven is supposed to do, it's supposed to dislodge you from this world. There's nothing that can compete with this place. And we'll see this as we continue to, to flush all of this out. Continue on. He says this, and there was no more sea. Now, at first glance, you say, what is the big deal? Well, it's written in the present. It actually shouldn't say was. There is no more sea. Now, what is the deal about the oceans? What is the deal when you see the oceans? Well, I know a lot of people, you know, they have these scenes on their computers and their backgrounds, and they have beautiful oceans in the background, and you have tropical paradises, but you have to go Jewish on this, man. You can't think Gentile. You have to think Jewish. To the Hebraic mindset, the oceans represent or symbolize several things that you need to be aware of, and this is why John is putting this in there. What do you mean? Okay. Well, the symbol of the ocean, the first thing was the ocean was a symbol of chaos to the Jew. Because it was something that man could not handle. He could not corral. He could not manage it. It was chaotic. In fact, the Bible in the Old Testament taught that only Yahweh could tame the seas. And contained the oceans. That's what the Old Testament taught. The only Yahweh could do that, but man can't. And because it's a symbol of chaos, remember, how did God create? He created out of that chaos the earth for Adam and Eve. There was the deep, right? And he, and he separated the waters. There was waters there. So to the Jewish mind, it symbolizes chaos. God made an order out of chaos is what creation is teaching Okay, so for the Jew, they saw the ocean, it's uninhabitable, we can't live there, it's uncontrollable, and therefore, it's chaotic. So the first symbol is, when it says no more sea, it's basically telling the Jew, there's no more chaos anymore. Everything is now controlled and habitable for man. In fact, to go further with this, It's not only a symbol of chaos, it's a symbol of evil. And therefore, to the Jew, having no sea represented a peace or shalom has finally occurred on planet Earth. It's an unruffled state. There's no evil anymore when you see no sea. It also was a symbol of judgment. I know when we go to the central coast and we look out in the ocean we see the sunset and we say, wow, how beautiful. That's not how the Jews saw the ocean. They saw the oceans as the reservoirs for Noah's flood, which that's exactly what they are. When you see the expanse of the Pacific Ocean, how big it is, just remember that water came from Noah's flood. When you see the Grand Canyon, that's where the runoff on the American Plateau, the North American Plateau, that's where all the runoff came out and went into the uh, to the deeps, into the Pacific Ocean, it ran through the Grand Canyon, off our our area. This place was all underwater, by the way, all underwater because of Noah's flood. You can go to Shark Tooth Hill, and you'll find shark teeth on mountains because all this was submerged by the flood. Okay, so to the Jewish mindset, this water that we see covering what seventy percent of the planet is symbolic of judgment. So in the new earth, there's no more sea because there's no judgment anymore. There's no threat of judgment. Everything is perfect. And then let me go one more step further to the symbolic nature of of water. It is no longer needed. You're like, what is the big deal about that? Well, follow me with this, this idea of having no oceans. Our planet is what, 70% water, right? And it's driven by a hydrological cycle. The way God created this planet is that our environment is completely water-based. Our environment. It has to run right. Our, our, our ecological systems. The oceans of the world are the cleansing waters of the planet. Without the oceans, we would get putrefied. It's in concert with the moon and the tides, but the oceans are what cleanses the planet. This is very important because we're in in a fallen state. We're in a fallen creation, but the oceans are working to help us cleanse things. Okay, so our environment, our survival is based on our oceans. And by the way, scientists can't find another planet anywhere in the near galaxy that's like planet Earth. There's nothing like planet Earth. You go to all these other planets, there's no water. You have to have water because it's a hydrological cycle that God created. Okay. So that's the hydrological cycle's gone. Okay. So what does that mean for us? The Earth was created for man. We needed this kind of environment to survive because you know what we're made of? Mostly water. God made us to where we are 65% water. What does that have to do with us? Well, follow me, man. This is very Hebraic. Do you know that your blood is what cleanses you? It is your blood. Life's in the blood. We know that. The Old Testament said that, right? The life is in the blood. It is our blood system that actually cleanses our system of toxins. So there's somewhat of a hydrological cycle inside of us. I was reading Henry Morris about this, and and you get his book, Revelation Record, or Genesis Record. I highly recommend those two books. They're phenomenal. But he was talking about salt water in the oceans and our blood. And he says, you know what? There's only just a little chemical difference between what's flowing through our veins versus what's in the oceans. There's only very little difference. So in essence, what God is cleansing the earth with, he's using inside of us to cleanse us. And what is the problem with us? Well, we're in a fallen state. Our bodies are dying. Our, they're getting older. We're getting sick. And our bodies won't eventually work very well. Our blood won't cleanse us like it's, it should. And in fact, we'll eventually die if the rapture doesn't happen. Okay, what does this have to do with the ocean? It has to do in the new eternal abode. We're given a new body. Okay, I'm following you there. But it's the kind of body that Jesus had in the resurrection. Well, what do you mean? Well, we know he had a glorified body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he gave a little clue there that the makeup of his new glorified body. And it's it's about us too. What did he say? Doubting Thomas is, is you know, not believing, Right. And Jesus comes and appears before him. He says, Thomas, you know, touch. And basically says, I'm not an apparition. Feel. But he goes, I'm of flesh and bone. And if you read that real quick, you'll miss what he said. Humans are made of flesh and blood. But he said in the new body... I am made of flesh and bone. I do not possess blood anymore. So what keeps us alive? Well, blood right now is keeping us alive. That's what God is using to keep us alive. It's life is in the blood, right? In our future bodies, we're, we have spiritual bodies that are not functioning on a water-based environment. Hence, Because of our future bodies not needing fluid, because we're spiritual bodies. It is flesh, it is bone, but there's no blood. It's, we are, we are, are spiritual in that sense. Instead of blood, so to speak, I'm using, I'm, I'm speaking tongue in cheek, but instead of blood coursing through you, the Spirit of God will be coursing through you, if that makes sense. This, it's the Spirit that will give you life, not your blood. And that's how you can have eternal life in a flesh and bone body. Well, if the body's made that way and we're not dependent on water, therefore, the new earth does not need a hydrological system anymore. It's not necessary for human beings who are glorified. Hence, there's no more seas. So I know that's a lot to unpack, but when John says, by the way, there's no more sea, that immediately just. (coughs) Hit the Jew just like that, I'm like what? They hit all the symbolism and they got it in just one aspect of him saying, There's no more seeds, by the way, guys. Wow. So that refers to our bodies no longer needing water. Yeah. Now, will you be able to drink in heaven? Of course. Will you be able to eat in heaven? Of course. It's, you'll see that later on. But it's not necessary for your body's survival because you're spiritually alive in this new flesh and bone body. Now, let me give some application before we, before we stop. The application, obviously, is we have this hope, this anticipation of the future that God promises based on his character and his word. And that's the key is all these promises that are based on God's character and his word. God is a God that tells the truth. He says, I do not lie. And he says, I do not change. Hence, when he says something's going to happen, it will happen. By the way, just being in Israel... All through the prophets in the Old Testament, he says, I'm going to bring Israel out of the nations one day and make a country in one day. And what did he do? He did. 1948, May 14th, he made a country in one day. Ezekiel Drybone's visions started. And just as all the prophets talked about, he did it. If he says he does it, he will do it. Okay, i got that. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to discern in our lives what is true hope from false hope okay what do you mean by this okay true hope is based on what God says and that he has the character and power to carry it out okay that's reality that's where you put your hope in it is not based on wishful thinking when you start saying well I think God is going to do this in my life you're on dangerous ground at that point in time Or if you have someone come and tell you, hey, man, I got a word from God and he says everything's going to work out great in your life. That's dangerous. That's spiritually abusive. Have you ever had another believer say, hey, I got a word from you for God for you and this is what's going to go down. That's dangerous because what that does to people is false hope. People have been told, hey, God told me you're going to be healed. And guess what? They don't get healed. Now what? Who do they blame? They blame God because someone gave them false hope. And you can just see it in simple things, and I understand people have good intentions when they say this to people. They'll tell people, hey man, everything's gonna work out, you'll be alright, all right. What? Don't say that to somebody. I don't how would you how would they know that? By what authority do they say that? See, that's dangerous. But but a lot of people do that and they give people false hope. Or even in our own personal lives, we think, you know what, man, if I had just a different job, man, things would be great. That's a false hope. You don't know that. Or, hey, man, if I just had a new relationship and I had a different boyfriend or a different girlfriend, and and this next person is going to be Superman, superwoman, uh, it's going to be great, and I know it's going to be good. And then you get them, and they turn out to be the same knucklehead that you had before, Right, And you end up saying, oh, oh man. And this is what people do. They start doing that enough with relationships. They do this a lot with a relationship. Well, I just need a new friend. Well, none of my friends are good, so I'm going to find a new friend. And they just keep going from friend to friend and they're all the same. What really is, they're the same. And they never, they never change because they take themselves with them. But the problem is, you keep doing that enough, you'll start doing what they call blanketing everything. That's the problem. Because when you put enough false hope and they, it burns you, man, you can get burned quick. But when someone says, hey, everything's going to be all right, and you, it doesn't turn out all right, then you start broad brushing your entire life. And you say, you know what? I ain't listening to anybody, and I'm not even going to listen to God. At that point, you're off the reservation. And I can tell you this a lot of Christians go off the reservation. They're bitter, they're angry, they're upset the way their life turned out. And what you want to say is, look, God didn't do this to you. You put your hope in the wrong things and the wrong people and the wrong ideas in your head. You tried to create paradise on earth and it didn't happen. And so now you're disillusioned and now you're depressed and now you're discouraged. Shame on you for thinking wrong. Because if you would have turned to this, he tells you everything what you can expect. And what did Jesus say? Hey, man, in this life, you're going to have trouble. It's not going to be a cakewalk. They're going to hate you because of me. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to see you through it. And on the other side, I have this waiting for you. So because of that, you can plunge forward and fight through all the junk that you have to go through. That's real. That's what's real. And it's because the one who said it can back it up with his power in order to do it. And let me finish on this story and just give you an illustration on a small level, on a human level. There was a class in Harlem and uh, I think 59 kids that were struggling in school. And so the school thought, well, let's bring in a speaker and talk to this class because we don't want them falling out of, 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 and dropping out and, and failing. And so they said, let's just bring in the speaker. Maybe they, we can encourage them well, the speaker they brought in, it was named Eugene Land, and he was a self-made millionaire. And so they brought him in, and the idea that Eugene Land would do is he'd go in there and motivate the kids, stay in school, get good grades, yada, yada, yada. The same fare as most motivational speakers. But Eugene Land thought about it, thought about it before he spoke to the class, and he said, man, it's got to be more than just me saying, hey, guys, stay in school i got to back that up. And Eugene Land put it on the line to those kids, and he went into that class in Harlem. The 59 kids, they were all listening, and he says, stay in school. And this is what he added. If all you guys stay in school, I'll pay for your college. And they said that changed everything. He had the money to pay for it all, by the way, because he was a self-made millionaire. So... Guess what happened to that class that was struggling, failing, and teachers afraid they're going to drop out? 90% of them graduated high school and took up his offer. They stayed in touch with him, and he put them all through college. Now, I want you to see that on a human level. What did that do? Someone who had the backing to say something like that said, I'll put you all through college if you guys graduate. And it motivated all the kids. It gave them hope to say, you know what? I believe that guy. He's, got a, he's a self-made millionaire. He can back up what he's saying. I'm going to stay in school, study hard, because I want to go to college. And that gave them hope. 90% of them graduated and went on to college. Now, think about that. If a millionaire can motivate a class of sixth graders in Harlem how much more than the God of the universe saying, I have prepared a wonderful place for you. I make all things new. And what we'll see there is there's no death, crying, mourning, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What I say is faithful and true. That's real hope. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.